Hi, this is Redeem. We give formerly incarcerated citizens the chance to share their stories, unadulterated, unashamed. This podcast is a partnership between criminal justice advocate Yasmin Barak and storyteller Matt Tekatala. Each episode offers a compassionate glimpse into the life of an American on a quest for redemption, along with the difficulties they face and the victories they celebrate. With each story, we learn more about the complicated nature of self-forgiveness and what it means to live in a just society. Today, we speak with Ali Tambura. He's a criminal justice advocate at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in San Francisco. My name is Ali Tambura. I am a formerly incarcerated American. I spent 12 years, 4 months, and 21 days in prison in California for assault. I've been home now just a little under 2 years. Ali tells us about how his prison sentence completely disrupted his life's trajectory. Before incarceration, I had this purpose in life. I'm like, I ran a small business. I want to build my business. And I had a family. I want to be a good father. And I was married. I want to be a good husband. And to a certain extent, I want to be a good citizen. Go vote and do the things that you pay your taxes and don't do any harm to your community. So I had all of these goals. And... When you get incarcerated, those goals disappear. Everything is ripped from you. And, you know, people argue on causation, you did this to yourself. It doesn't matter. This happens. It doesn't matter, you know, whether I did it to myself or whether the state did it or, or whatever. You lose all of your material belongings. You learn that, you know, you can't care about your car. Your relationships shatter. So my relationships with my children shatter. And so then I was put on this hyper violent, prison yard, a level four prison yard, Corcoran State Prison out in the Central Valley. And so my purpose then changed to daily survival. Level four prisons, also designated as maximum security facilities, are intended for the most violent offenders. Each inmate gets their own individual cell and is allowed to be outside of it for only 90 minutes per day in California. What am I going to do if someone comes and attacks me with a knife? What am I going to do if people are fighting and the correctional guards are shooting at them with live ammunition? How am I going to protect myself from being shot? When there's a riot on the yard, how am I going to protect myself from, you know, being shot in the riot, stabbed in the riot, caught in a group of men that are not in my group? How am I going to keep myself from being sexually assaulted? That became my purpose. And then I started, you know, working my way down in custody and I started, I got to less and less violent prison yards. And then you start wondering, well, what's your purpose? What's my purpose now? When you get to the lower level prisons in California, it's easier to navigate around the violence. Then my purpose steered to, you know, what can I do to maximize the amount of time I have in prison to my benefit? And so I started taking programs. I have to say, when I left the level four yards, I was an angry guy, I was bitter at the criminal justice system. But I remember a guy who had a life sentence telling me, Ali, why don't you take some of these programs, these self-help programs? And you know, I was like, fuck you, why would I take a self-help program? So this friend of mine was looking at me and says, like, he says, Ali, you're tripping, you need, you need some of this. And so my purpose was like, okay, well, let me check out one of these things. I got involved in the computer pro- programming class on you know, closing on 50 years old. Let me try this out. San Quentin Prison offers more than 2,000 inmates access to numerous rehabilitation programs, ranging from educational to vocational. Each one is intended to provide skills and avenues for inmates' success, for life both inside and outside prison. 
Ali learned computer programming through a program called The Last Mile, founded in 2010. It aims to break the cycle of incarceration by teaching inmates how to code and connecting them with paid apprenticeships at tech companies upon release. But a lot of inmates want to boost more than just their resumes. Ali wanted to grow as a person. Let me learn about myself. Let me learn how I got to the point where instead of walking away from a toxic relationship, I thought I should lash out. And so my purpose became like self-exploration and building a stronger person, learning how to deal with conflict, learning how to deal with my own emotions, which is still hard. It's still a battle. It's like, it's, you know, it's not something that's like I took this one class and it doesn't solve all, end all. Um, but I really learned a lot. Sadly, regardless of your new outlook on life upon release, the process of re-entering society is a beast of its own. You know, I think a successful re-entry depends on the individual um, and the individual's needs. For me, uh, it was being able to secure housing, having access to health care, a life-sustaining job, access to transportation, and, you know, all of, all of the other peripheral things that we value in, in American life. And so it's basically being able to be like a citizen again, being able to contribute. But what if you can't get a job? On a job application, there's a box that says, have you been convicted of a felony? And if so, list out that felony. And in some cases, if it's, if it's a job for the government, it's actually a crime not to answer that truthfully. And so employers screen out a lot of, a lot, well, probably from my experience, almost 100% of people who have had a criminal conviction. If you want to get a job working in retail and you have a theft on your record, the legal department of, of that corporation is going to say, no, we, we can't have people working for us like that. Or if it's a fraud conviction and you're work, you want to work around data, the legal department is not going to have that. And so even sometimes, and I'm learning this, is you may have well-intentioned CEOs of companies that say, you know, hey, we believe in giving people second chances, and that doesn't trickle down to their human resources department. Without a job, you can't afford to pay rent. And if you can't pay rent, public housing might be your only option. That is, if you don't have a record. As someone who's been convicted of a felony, I'm not eligible for many housing vouchers or public housing. If I didn't have family support in housing, I would have had to go to a transitional home or would have been homeless. I could go live with a family member and not have to pay a mortgage or rent my first month out of incarceration or even my second month or third month, right? So their support in that way was, was very important. Maintaining a supportive network of loved ones isn't just helpful for finding a place to crash. I would have my family go to Walmart and buy four boxes of Christmas cards. And so every year I would produce this status letter of how I was doing, you know, what I was doing in rehabilitative circles, how I was feeling mentally, how my relationships were with my children and my family members and other friends. And so I'd craft this letter and I'd put humor in it because I know like for a lot of my friends, they really wanted to help me or my family, they really wanted to help me and there was really nothing that they could do to help me. So I'd put humor in these letters and that really paid off because I kept the connections with all of my friends and all of my family. And I did this countdown. 
uh, you know, it started at like 12, 11 years left. And as I got down to a year, then I really started just pouring letters out. You know, I'm coming out in six months. And so when I did finally parole, my friends were ready. They were like, hey, come by. And, you know, they hand me a card and there's $3,000 in it. Or, hey, I want you to go over here and go to the men's warehouse. We have a friend down there. He's going to take care of you, get fitted for a couple of suits. Some of my friends paid for my optometrist and got me some some new glasses. And those are, that was probably one of the single most important things that I needed. I remember walking into a Safeway and just seeing like all of the food and all of the people. And it was just, it was overwhelming. You know, I went back to the car and I was like, just, but, but having a network of friends that understood where I came from, didn't judge me, gave me financial and moral support was, it was super, super important. Ali was lucky enough to have friends and family that were willing to help him in his time of need. But tensions can arise in any relationship. But I also have to say that some of the most challenging moments of reentry have been my family. You know, when I, when I was first incarcerated, my kids were teenagers. And you build this fantasy that your children still need you. And, you know, I get out and it's like they have their lives. And, you know, I'm like, well, wait, can I come hang out? And they're like, well, maybe that, you know what I mean? And it, it was, um, and then also friction points. I, I, I had terrible argument with my my younger brother and I've had some real contentious conversations with my mother and all of these relationships that you miss so much trying to come back in and reestablish those relationships as they were that's impossible and it it's like a slow progression of getting to know each other again and you know the things that I missed about them are the same things that irritate the shit out of me now Ali learned a lot from his experiences assimilating back into society. He knew all too well the difficulties of being a formerly incarcerated person, so he decided to use his knowledge to help others in similar situations. So I got out of prison and joined a bunch of guys who have gotten out of prison before me and doing a lot of work in the Bay Area around criminal justice reform and giving money to people just getting out of prison, whether it was 40 bucks or 200 bucks. I just sent a a visa card to someone who got out of prison for 400 bucks and then um, started applying for jobs and inevitably landed at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative working in the criminal justice division. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is a philanthropic organization started by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. It promotes science, education, social justice, and economic opportunity. Ali is the manager in the criminal justice reform division. Thankfully, I work for an organization that, that has helped helping facilitate my ability to make an impact in the world and make sure that people don't get victimized by other people. So keeping people out of the criminal justice system and pe keeping people from being victimized by perpetrators and also keeping perpetrators from being victimized by the criminal justice system and keeping people who have gone through the criminal justice system from going back into the criminal justice system. So I, I love it. There are very few jobs that will hire you because of your record, and thankfully, Ali managed to land one. My incarceration has opened up a lot of doors for me because there's such a push in this nation to reform the criminal justice system. To think that a company recruited me for my experience, they wanted to reform the system and believe that people who have been through the system, 
know a lot about the system and should have a voice at the table in changing the system when most companies are like, oh, I don't want someone who's system impacted. I don't want someone with a criminal conviction working for me. My company is so progressive in thinking that they said, no, if we're going to reform the system, we need these voices at the table. There's a definite advantage for people like me who are working in this space because we know that the criminal justice system is not the criminal justice system depicted on television. We know it's not the criminal justice system depicted even um, in penal codes. It's a criminal justice system that has been shaped by you know, decades of, of either voter initiatives or prosecutors using the law that the way they want to, and we best know how to reform it. So there's a lot of doors or a lot of opportunity available in this space. Ali is clearly fulfilled by his work, but he acknowledges that this is a huge privilege. The vast majority of the people leaving incarceration they want to put it behind them and move on with their lives, go back to their careers. And unfortunately, the collateral consequences of incarceration don't allow them to do that. Um, where I'm fortunate in using my incarceration um, as a stepping stone in, into this, this movement, there are hundreds of thousands of people, I think over 600,000 people a year leave our prisons and jails. The people that are going into criminal justice reform are just a teeny tiny drop in the bucket. The rest of those people face an incredible challenges to integrating back into society. So, you know, representing myself, I can say I've been fortunate, but I'm a rarity. This is, this is not something that happens for everybody. Most times it's, it's almost impossible. It's virtually impossible for someone to leave incarceration and thrive. Part of why thriving is so difficult is because society defines you by your record. Ali refers to his record as the state's narrative. And not only does he believe this narrative shouldn't define him, but he also believes it's inaccurate to begin with. The lady I'm dating, her sister Googled me and got the state's narrative of my crime, which is really, it sounds really terrible. I Google it and, and read it. Um, that's not the narrative that happened, and I will never let that define who I am, and I will never accept that. Um, I have an aunt who's a prison warden, a retired prison warden, and I did an interview when I was in San Quentin, and the news interview went onto the internet, and she wrote me a scathing letter and told me, you know, Ali, when you leave prison, you want to put all of this behind you, and if you do interviews and things like that, they're going to stay on the internet forever. And then I really started thinking about it. And I said, well, you know, if people Google me, they can find the state's narrative of my crime. And so what do I want out there, right? Do I want this, just their narrative? I'm like, no. You know what? I'm doing lots of good things, right? From meeting with politicians, to starting a newspaper, reinvigorating a newspaper inside San Quentin, and you know, meeting with local DAs and doing all of these things. I said, well, I'm going to change my brand. I can't let the state define my brand. And so a lot of men are different in this, where they just want to put prison behind them and move forward. Unfortunately, we live in a digital age. People can with a few keystrokes, find out whether you're incarcerated, what you're incarcerated for, 
you know, how long you've been home, all of these, all of these things that, that become public information around the criminal justice system, you can't hide. So for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to reband myself. I'm going to do all the work I can in prison. You know, if the news is coming through the prison, I'm going to make sure I'm on it. I'm going to make sure they know what I'm doing. They make sure I'm, they know I'm in college. I felt obligated to donate a portion of my meager salary when I was in prison to battered women shelters. You know, doing everything I can to redeem myself while I'm in prison and make sure that it's public. Because I don't want the state's narrative to define who I am for the rest of my life. There are times where I get depressed. Am I always going to be, you know, a Lee Tambura that went to prison? Or am I ever just going to be a guy, like a normal American guy who's, you know, living his life? Um, unfortunately, we live in an era where the state can define you if you allow them to define you. So I have to just own this. Ali owns his mistakes. One, because his career depends on it. And two, because it's important for the American public to know that change is possible. I'm good with saying that I'm formally incarcerated. I wear that as a badge of honor. Not many people can go through some of the most violent and turbulent prisons in the United States, which I've gone through, and come out the backside and say, you know what, I'm not going to just move forward in my, my life and not look backwards. I want the public to know that people can get out of prison or get through a criminal conviction and do good in life. But I think people that can actually make a difference in the world. This narrative that once I was really, really bad and now I'm really, really good, is it's binary. It's not true. Many people who are in prison are in prison because of lack of economic opportunity or, or social factors. Or like in my case, being in a really emotionally charged situation and, and not having the tools to deal with that situation and impulse issues and th things like that. I mean, I've never met a child that said, I am going to grow up to be a criminal. And people are starting to get it. I mean, as we've entered in this era of mass incarceration, everybody knows somebody who's been touched by the, by the carceral system, right? Everybody has an uncle or a friend or a friend of a family that has you know, been incarcerated or on probation or on parole. And they go, wait a minute, you know, Uncle Bob's not a terrible person. And so I, I guess, like, for me, it's about building this narrative change. But, but to win this fight, Americans have to look at people like myself and other people leaving prisons to understand that they aren't these really terrible people that are going to get out and go victimize neighborhoods. And, and most people in prison just want to get out and start their lives over and have an opportunity to do that. One way to ensure that formerly incarcerated people are given a second chance is to offer them the option to expunge their record. Ali believes this will open up more employment opportunities and create a society that lives up to its values. I think that everybody is not their worst mistake. I think probably if a felony conviction or a misdemeanor conviction is relevant to the position and could have some consequences on that position, obviously you would not want a child molester, for instance, working in a daycare. That makes sense. But the idea that 
you went joyriding with your friends in a stolen car, and then five years later, you can't get a job working at a local lumberyard, that doesn't correlate and it doesn't make sense. So in that sense, no. I, I think that there should definitely be a statute as far as how long that criminal conviction follows you. If you have been doing everything you're supposed to do for two, five, ten years, I think there should be an automatic expungement of that record because everybody has the capability of changing and everybody has the capability of making mistakes. And so the idea that you're judged by your worst mistake for the rest of your life, I don't think it's core to American values and I don't think it's core to Christian values. And I believe that you know nobody is above uh, redemption. No matter how much time you serve behind bars or how much you've grown since your conviction, your criminal record follows you indefinitely. It's a life sentence that hinders formerly incarcerated Americans' access to vital resources, rendering them second-class citizens permanently. And unfortunately, one of the things, and I, I want to touch on this because I've never heard this in the media, the, the big measurement for success is recidivism. Recidivism is the idea that someone returns or recommits a crime and returns back into custody. This is a metric that law enforcement made and it's a false metric. Just because I haven't violated a rule or committed a new offense does not mean I'm successful. If I get out of prison and I'm forever locked out of employment and I'm homeless, or I'm living in a, a creek addicted to heroin, does that mean I'm a success story? In law enforcement's eyes, it does. As long as you're not rearrested, as long as you're you're, you're not back on their rosters. Not as you're, you're you know, not back in court charged with a new crime. They're like, oh, success. And it, it's not, it's not a, an accurate metric. There's so, so many people that face these collateral consequences for the rest of their lives. And it marginalizes them for the rest of their lives. Because they didn't commit a new crime doesn't mean that their life is great or successful. And there's this idea that people can get out and just thrive and others can't, and it, it's a really it's a false narrative. Ali points out another false narrative that is commonly advertised, that the courtroom adjudication process is fair to begin with. So there's a lot of things that people who've been touched by the criminal justice system understand that people who have never gone through it can never comprehend. We have these television shows in America, you know, we have, I think there's like 20 different CSIs, and there's cops, and there's these court dramas, and so people get there and is locked up, which is one of the worst I've ever seen. But people get their notion or get shape their idea of what the criminal justice system is by watching these TV shows. What they show on TV is all sensationalism. The idea that the courtroom works like these courtrooms, uh, uh, it, it, it does, doesn't work that way. And so when you actually see how it functions, it's actually sickening. To, and to think that People actually think that people who go in there have a fair shake. For instance, if anyone is charged with a crime, there's over a 90% chance that you're going to get convicted of that crime. Whether you're guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter. People don't know that. Ali is right. According to a 2019 Pew Research Center study, around 92% of defendants charged with the federal crime were convicted. Of those convicted, only 2% had been convicted during trial. The rest had pled guilty without even going to trial. Oftentimes, defendants are encouraged to take guilty pleas, 
even if they are innocent, to avoid the possibility of facing harsher sentences during trial. And since pretrial detention can last years, many poor criminal defendants who can't afford bail choose to plead guilty as a way to get out of jail quicker. This is just one of many ways that poor defendants get the short end of the stick. And for Ali, this is not a tragic outcome of the American justice system. It's kind of the point. This system, and this is a big argument whether it's broken or not, I, I believe the criminal justice system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. I think the criminal justice system was not designed to house wealthy white landowners. I think it was designed to protect their property. I don't think it was designed to protect the poor. A good example of this is our, our bail system. If you are wealthy and you get accused of a crime, you are considered innocent until proven guilty. You go in, you pay a little bit of money, you go home, you hire an attorney, the attorney represents you in court and can really advocate for you. If you're poor, you get arrested. If you're presumed innocent, why are you incarcerated? Because you can't afford bail, right? If it was designed to help the poor, it wouldn't have a bail mechanism like that, right? The idea is that, no, if you're poor, you don't have the presumption of, of innocence. Like, you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. And then not only that, but even if you're, even if you're not poor, even if you're a low-wage earner and you can't afford bail, like, the first thing that happens is you lose your job. The second thing happens is you lose your home. And then the collateral consequences of that of your children not having a home. And, and you know, there's just so much stuff that happens to poor people who get caught up in the criminal justice system. If you look at the, the legal services for, for or public defender's office, offices in particular, they're not resourced the way a private attorney is. Their caseloads are huge. The only time the defendant sees his attorney is when they're in court. There's no pre-planning. There's no resources for hiring investigators, right? And so it's really designed to keep poor people poor, keep poor people incarcerated, and let the people who have resources not be incarcerated. And so I believe it's, it's doing what it's designed to do. But the solution isn't to completely get rid of prisons. Rather, Ali says we've got to rethink them. And that starts with shifting the focus away from punishment and towards restoration. I'm not a prison abolitionist. I believe that as a society, we've decided that, yes, we want to incapacitate people who violate the rules. But I also believe that the people that go through that system should come out restored, right? I believe that if you're a victim of a crime, the criminal justice system should help you heal also. I mean, at the end of the day, the criminal justice system should at least bring the community back to the level it was at before the harm was done. But what the criminal justice system does now is it takes advantage of the victim. If you look, there's in, in Louisiana, there, I mean, it's audacious. Imagine being a rape victim and being arrested because you refuse to testify against your perpetrator, right? So you're doubly victimized by the criminal, by, well, by the perpetrator and by the criminal justice system. If you're a victim of a crime, you have the right to be restored. You have the right not to be victimized a second time. If you're a perpetrator, you have to face the music. You have to face what society has decided the sanctions should be against you. But also, as a civil society, 
you should have the right to put that time aside for redemption, understanding what got you to the point where you could commit a crime, understanding how to never do that again. And not only that, when you leave incarceration, there should be a clear path to you for you, for individuals to employment and housing. Because what's happening now is all the collateral consequences make it so people are recidivating. They, 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 don't have, they don't have the opportunities. And if you don't have the opportunities, if you're a drug dealer, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go back to drug dealing. If you're a car thief, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go back to cars, stealing cars because there's no opportunity for you to do anything else. And so, yeah, I, I believe that you know, we have a moral obligation to make sure that our society heals. And I think the criminal justice system has a moral obligation to make sure that this happens. In its current state, the American criminal justice system preys on our poor and contributes to the cycle of recidivism. To tackle all these problems, many of which Ali personally faced, incarceration has to be a rehabilitative process for offenders, a chance to redeem. Ali, more than anyone, knows that there's a lot of work to be done. That's why his passion for criminal justice reform extends beyond his day job. So I volunteer. I volunteer one or two days a week teaching kids to write computer code in East Palo Alto. I think um, civic engagement and community engagement is super duper important. Um, a lot of the programs that I went through when, when I was incarcerated were staffed by volunteers. I took college courses through uh, the Prison University Project, in which I'm on their board now, which is really cool, in San Quentin, and they're staffed completely by volunteers. And they made a significant impact in my life in the way I can think critically about the whole criminal justice system and, and my outlook on life. Ali's passion is not just limited to criminal justice, however. And I'm an avid scuba diver. I love the ocean, ocean conservation. After I got married, I went to Thailand and I did this, what they call a resort course. And I went out in the ocean and it was in the Andaman Sea. And I was like, you know, holy shit, there's another world down here. This is beautiful. So I came back, got certified, joined a dive club. I then started traveling the world. I think I've been to 26 countries on this, on this planet many of them to scuba dive, and started traveling and diving and take, doing underwater uh, photography and underwater videography. And it's really, it's been a passion ever since. I love it. I, uh, I try to be in the ocean twice a month lately because of work. It's been more like once or twice every two months. Uh, recently went to Hawaii and dove Hawaii. I have a real interest now because I was incarcerated for 12 years. And so I have hundreds of hours of underwater videography of locations that I've, I've dove, like in Honduras and the, uh, um, other areas in the Caribbean. I've dove uh, the Red Sea, um, islands off the coast of Vietnam. I really have an interest in going back and seeing if I can video the same spots because we have this acidification of our oceans and this global temperature rise. And they say by 2050, we'll lost over 50% of our coral reefs. So I want to see if I can see like the difference in the videos from now and then. I think it's, we're in a sad state with our ocean and I just really have a passion for ocean conservation. What Ali wants, in addition to the protection of our oceans, is a more equitable world. 
a world where justice means more than retribution. And this passion for systemic change began with his incarceration. So, you know, getting back to your original question, how did it change my life? It, it fundamentally shifted my motivation from just earning an income to making a difference in the world by lowering the footprint of the criminal justice system. I'm going to make a difference in the world by making it possible for offenders to have a clear pathway post-incarceration so they don't go injure their communities or injure individuals post-incarceration. I'm going to change the world to make sure that men, specifically men of color and women of color, have the opportunity, the same opportunities as other Americans before they even are touched by the criminal justice system to thrive. As you can tell, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about just um, restoring community. I mean, we're never going to get rid of crime. We can vastly reduce crime by vastly increasing opportunities in underserved communities, but we will never get rid of crime. And, you know, I don't know if America's ready to get rid of prisons or the world is ready to get rid of prisons, but we definitely can learn to do it right. We can definitely learn to make sure that there's a restoration of, you know, community and people post-incarceration. And I, I think it's imperative as, as a civil society that, you know, we make our criminal justice system so it's a mechanism for healing, not a me mechanism for hurt. That was criminal justice advocate and scuba diver Ali Tambura. Thanks for listening to Redeem. We'll see you next time.